Good morning. <clears throat> Why don't we open up in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> We're getting very near the end, actually, of Romans 8. We're getting near the end of the middle of Romans, whatever that means. That's where we are. Um, You'll see in your bulletins, I have us going through verse 32. Um, Actually, I think, James, weren't weren't you and I talking about this not too long ago? That it's, I often get this question, you know, Friday, Saturday, how's the sermon going? Uh, Are you ready? Are you prepared? It's like, no, I'm not prepared. That's, what are you talking about? It's, it's, it's 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and I think I'm finally prepared to preach. I had a, I had a seminary professor who, who would say, you're finally prepared to preach the text once you finish preaching the text. That's when you've been prepared, and you realize maybe what you should have done and what you could have done better. That's when you, when you know. So... Friday, I thought we were going to be going through verse 32. That's the point. But we're going to go through verse 34 this morning. And this morning's text, actually this whole passage here from 31 down to 39, is a, it's a precious reassurance, um, reassessment of God's love for us. That it's, it's, this, it's this conclusion to these chapters that we've been in for so long, 5, 6, 7, and 8, where Paul is sort of, Taking the, the, the pictures, the illustrations, um, his conclusions on why God's love for us is so good and so wonderful and eternally and infinitely great. And he's wrapping it up in this section here. And he does it, he does it by asking five questions. And the question that I've been dealing with this week is, well, how do you break up these five questions? And I probably got it wrong, but here's how we're going to do it. We're going to take this week the first four questions and then next week the fifth question. And the reason for that is I think the way that he that these questions are broken up is that these first four questions that he gives us, uh, he's using a lot of judicial language, which he's used throughout the book of Romans. That's courtroom language legal language. And what he's doing in these first four questions is he's throwing us forward to that last day where we stand in the courtroom before God. And so he's using, he's using words like on our behalf, for us, charge us, give us, condemn, justify. Those are all courtroom language, judicial words. And so these first four questions deal with that final day, which perhaps is a terrifying day for you to think about. I don't know. The fifth question we'll deal with next week, and I'm not sure we're going to deal with all of the fifth question next week, but the fifth question we'll at least get into next week deals with this in-between from now to that last day. And what secures us and sustains us in hope for when we get there. I'm going to read the text here and we'll get into it. Look at verse 31. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. It's an interesting question he starts off with here in verse 31, isn't it? And perhaps you've asked yourself the same question this week. If you've, if you've, been listening and paying attention on a Sunday morning, especially in these last few weeks as we've been in sort of, let's say, difficult territory, perhaps. We're dealing with suffering and trial and tribulation and plans and purposes of God in these things from before time began. You know, that's a lot to, to deal with and comprehend, perhaps. You've asked this same question that Paul asks us here at the beginning of 31. Uh, what shall we say to these things? Or maybe a, maybe a better way to understand what he's asking us there is, what now? Uh, what do I do with this information? How, how do I live in light of this? What are the implications for me and he's going to tell us when it comes to that last day and then all the time in between now and then. How then shall we live? What do we say to these things? I mean, this is what we've seen just in recent weeks. Paul said that your sufferings are purposeful. He said, therefore, you're good. He said, they're for God's glory. He said that your sufferings are designed, planned and purposed to make you more like Jesus. He said, 
that God uses them. He works all of them together in his plan and purpose so that on the last day, Jesus will be seen as the worthy one. The one who sits in the in the position of the firstborn son, he says that that is the one who in ancient times would receive everything from the father. That that everything you're experiencing in life now, believer, is making you more like Jesus. It's bringing glory to God and that ultimately it's for the purpose of exalting Jesus so that on that last day he receives everything from his father. It's a lot to take in, isn't it? It's, it's, look, it's okay when we're reading something like this to say, whoa, that's a lot to take in. It is. And Paul asks us, it's a great question, what do we do with this? What, what, what do we do with that? And so what, what Paul does here in, in, in this passage is he, he asks us these questions to help clarify in our minds just exactly what are the implications of what we're being taught to solidify them in our minds. And what he's doing, he's not simply just summing up these past few weeks. This, this conclusion here in chapter eight is summing up five through eight, where he started off this section, this, this question that we have, what is our assurance in this life? That God's not just going to leave us behind. Or that we're not just going to lose all of this. Or that we can do something to take away from Christ's work. Chapter 5 began by, by saying, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... That's picking up on chapters 1 through 4. He's made the case that we are justified by faith. That is, God has declared us right in Christ based on what Christ did, nothing on what we did. Since that case has been closed in those first four chapters, chapter 5, since we've been justified by faith, he says the result of that is that we have, that is presently ongoing, Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is that we now experience peace with God the Father in our present eternal condition in union with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He goes on to explain that. Through Him, that's through Christ, we have obtained access by faith. He has opened up the door by faith into this grace in which we stand continually, constantly. And what we do in light of that is that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He actually starts talking about suffering right there. And then he kind of goes through all of these other things talking about, well, what about our indwelling sin? I mean, is that ever popped up in your thought as a problem. Maybe I am going to be separated from the love of Christ because I have a lot of sin issues that I still deal with. Or what about death? He deals with that also. 
How, how, how can I be considered to be just before God, innocent, where I should be guilty based on Christ, and yet I'm still going to face death someday? I often find myself feeling like a slave to sin, and yet there's a pull in my heart because I'm a slave to Christ, and there's this inner battle that I'm having. What's going on there? That's, that's five through eight. That's what he's wrapping up in this section in the end of chapter eight. And we've dealt with a lot. I mean, that's a lot of stuff, isn't it? That's, that's all of life right there for the believer. There's other things that go on, but these things are what's sort of the, the, the underlying thread through all of it. And so Paul's helping us out. How do we think through this? Because he's explained all of it. He's given us everything we need to understand that we're safe in Christ. 31, he says, all right, let's step back for a second and let's ask this question. What do we say to these things? How do we deal with it? What does the future look like for us now because of this? And so this is what he says. He asks his questions to clarify. He starts off and says, if God is for us. Now, that's a conditional sentence. It means there are some conditions here. If then statements, right? If this happens, then this will happen. Paul's already explained the if though, hasn't he? He's already made it clear that God is for us. So, so the, the, the if, it's not like we're tossing up a coin, hoping to get heads and maybe not tails. When he, when, he, when he says this, if God is for us, you can read it as since God is for us, because Paul has, Paul has made that clear so far. If God is for us, since God is for you, believer. Did you believe that to be true? Believer? Is God for you? That means, is he on your side? Do you believe it to be true? You've got to ask yourself this question because Paul's trying to help us work through this stuff right here. Is God on your side? If you're not confident of it, go back to chapter 5 and start again. Because that's what Paul's dealt with. He's dealt with God is on your side, believer. It's been demonstrated. Down to the point where we just got in the last two weeks that we can view even the tragedies and the trials in our life as God being on our side. Now, that might be a difficult thing to comprehend. Nevertheless, it's true. We can't look at trials and we can't look at, at tragedies, the difficulties of life, as anything other than God giving us his best for our good. If there was a better way for this to be handled, it would be handled that way. You can be confident of that. That what's happening in our lives is for our best. He's working out Christ in us to make us more like him. 
So here's the question then. If that's the case, and since it is, because he's dealt with it. Since that's the case, here's the question. Who can be against us? I thought of it this way. I don't know how helpful this is. This is, uh, this is on a far less degree. Don't take it too far. But I was thinking, when I was a kid, I don't think there was anything much scarier than having to go upstairs to my room when it was dark, alone. Anybody afraid of the dark? Or have dealt with afraid of the dark? It should, it should go away eventually, right? But whatever it is, closet monsters or the monsters under the bed or whatever it is. When you're eight years old, that's a terrifying thing. You don't want to admit it because you're a brave, strong eight-year-old kid. But for some reason, going upstairs in the dark is a scary thing. But if someone is with you, for some reason, there's nothing to be afraid of, right? I mean, what... What the, the audacity of a closet monster to think that he can deal with mom or dad. You see what I'm saying? It's impossible. Now, we're not talking about closet monsters here, obviously. But on a, on a far greater level, this is what Paul's telling us here. Except, we've moved from a much scarier place to imaginary mo- from imaginary monsters in the closet to the courtroom on the last day. Does anybody have any fear of that last day? Who, who can possibly stand against you if God is standing there at your side? There's nothing to fear. Now, he goes on a little bit to explain why this is the case and, and why we should view it as the case. He says, the God who is on your side, believer did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Here's the situation. There is one person who could stand against you. Right? There's one person in this courtroom who could stand against you. But the situation is that he is standing there on your side. Do we have any reason to think that maybe he could turn on us? He says, he's the one who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. What what proof, what evidence do we have that on that final day, as we stand in the courtroom awaiting the verdict of God, that he won't turn and stand against us? What evidence do we have that that won't happen? Paul says, look, he has given his, not just his son, his own son. He makes it emphatic. This is his son that he gave up for us all. Acts 2 says that this was according to the divine plan and foreknowledge of God that he would give up his son for us. That God had planned an eternity past to deliver over his son for his people so that 
on that last day, as we stand in the courtroom, you know you're guilty already, don't you? That the verdict would not come down as guilty, but as innocent because of what Christ has done. And the question is, how will the God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's already given us the best thing. Why would he hold back the little things? Why would he turn and change his mind after the suffering and death of his own son? And this is why I made this point a few weeks back. Maybe you'll remember that salvation is not about you. Do you remember that? This is why it's important right here. Because right there in the courtroom, with God on your side, what is at stake is the glory and the exaltation of his son. Him turning against you goes against the glory and the exaltation of his son. Do you see that? He has staked his reputation on bringing his people to himself. You can have confidence in that. I know that I am safe in the arms of Christ, not because God is just doing a good work in me, he is, but because he is bringing glory to his name through the lifting high of his son. So that, Paul already said, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Believer, if you're in Christ, if you've been saved by grace through faith, that last day is a coming joy, not a coming fear. You can have confidence in that. Now look at verse 33. He asks another question. <clears throat> Similar. But it's a little more probing, perhaps. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Kind of a worrying question, isn't it? We can ask this, maybe. Does anyone at all have any reason to bring a charge against you? It's a terrifying question, isn't it? Say, well, I can name about 15,000 probably, maybe more that I don't know about. I can, bring, I can bring plenty of charges against myself. Maybe you've worried about this. I'm sure you've had these thoughts. I've done some bad things in my life. If you know, fill in the blank shows up on that last day. Or maybe you think, you know what? Most people think I've lived a pretty good sin-free life. But if we stand up there on that last day and someone walks out with a book listing everything I've done, that's going to be one long, disgusting book. Or if we have 4K video of my life and someone plays out everything that I've ever done, that's going to be one long, embarrassing, filthy video, isn't it? 
Does the thought of that just send chills up your spine of how disgusting that's going to be? It should. I mean, we're all thinking the same thing there. I, I, I cringe to even think about the possibility of even myself seeing that movie, much less God. Here's the question Paul's asking What if someone brings that to the witness stand? Are you coming out guilty or are you coming out innocent? I'm coming out guilty. Maybe you can ask, what if the man I defrauded shows up? What if the woman I committed adultery with appears? What if the man I killed happens to walk in? What if the domain owner of that porn site happens to find me? There's an infinite list there, isn't there? Better yet, what if I'm called to testify against myself? I'm guilty. Who's going to bring a charge against you, believer? I'm sure those thoughts have plagued you every now and then. They're terrible to think about, except look at the answer. Who is to condemn? We could spend hours saying, well, this person and this person and this person are... Or Sorry, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I skipped the line, didn't I? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? We could go down the list. Look at the answer, though. It is God who justifies. That is, it is God who declares someone to be right or someone to be guilty. That's his prerogative. And so Paul says, bring the charges. They're all true. In fact, isn't that the declaration that everyone in here who is a believer has made and continually makes? Isn't that what we do as we come in here on a Sunday morning? I am guilty of sin. That's what we picture in baptism. That I need all of you to know that I am a guilty sinner and that if I don't have an advocate if I don't have someone to stand in my place on that last day that when I go down in this water I am not coming back up it's all of them you deserve all of it you're absolutely correct you deserve death the Bible says hell for our sin but look it's God who justifies it's God himself who declares me Right. And so here's here's what's going on. If God is the one calling you innocent. Based on the blood of his son, based on the work of his son, based on what Christ did. Here's the question. Who in their right mind is going to bring any charge against you? God has declared me innocent. All of it's true. I'm guilty of it all. But I'm innocent because of what Christ has done. There's no one who can bring any charge against God's people because it's been paid for. Now, look, he goes even deeper into this question. Let's let's ask this question. Then who's to condemn? We're in a courtroom. We've had the trial. Now comes the sentencing. 
There's been sin. There's been guilt. Someone's got to pay for it. Someone has to carry out the sentencing. Only the judge can hand out the sentence. And he just declared me just. Who's going to condemn us? No one. Because Christ Jesus is the one who died, he says. Meaning, as Paul said earlier in the chapter, Jesus stood condemned in my place. That's what took place at the cross, you see. Our guilt, our sin, that should put us in the grave. Jesus came and went to Calvary's cross to bear that burden for us. He paid for it. He stood condemned. He went to jail on our behalf. He took the death penalty on our behalf. The sentence has already been handed down. And so on the last day, you can't be condemned because the punishment has already been carried out. The infinite debt has already been paid. Christ Jesus has died. Look at this. This is a great word right here. More than that. More than that. He was raised. That means the sentence has been completed. If you think about the justice system... There's two ways to get out of jail. I realize there's other ways to get out of jail, but let's keep this narrowed here. You go in with your sentence and you come out after serving your time. Or if you're serving a life sentence, you can come out when you're dead. The sentence has been paid for. It's over. Our sentence is a life sentence. Ends in death. Paul is saying that Jesus is the one who died. He paid for it. But more than that, he was raised. That means he has come out on the other side. That the sentence has been paid for and dealt with. It's in the grave. The verification for us that it's been dealt with fully is that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's... God the Father saying, this has been accomplished and finished. It's over. We're not going to stand there and hear, you got to pay for something because Jesus didn't finish that for you. There's no purgatory for us. There's no working off this debt in life. It has been paid for fully and finally at the cross. And our stamp of approval is the resurrection. He goes on to explain what Jesus is doing now. Who's to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. He stood condemned in our place. Romans 8, 3. He's seated at the right hand of God, which means that our redemption has been accomplished. It's been applied. He sits down at the right hand of God as the everlasting testimony that our sin has been dealt with. He's the, the stamp of approval. 
He sits there at the right hand of God interceding for us so that every time something happens and it happens all the time that Jesus stands there as the constant reminder that that has already been dealt with. We sing a song about this, don't we? Why this fear and unbelief has not the father put to grief his spotless son for us. And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin now canceled at the cross? Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, intercedes for us. Every sin we commit, every failure we fail, Every thought not held captive to Christ, every wandering passion, Christ intercedes for and stands as the constant reminder that we have been set free in him. Is that good news or is it good news? Believer, we have no reason for fear of that last day. God is not our enemy. He calls us friend. We are in Christ. We are in Him. What's the mark of a believer? What is, what, is, what is evidence of belief in our life? Is it that we never sin? We never fail? That our lives are perfect? I mean, if that's the case, we've got to we got a lot of stuff to deal with in this room, don't we? Now, the mark of a believer is one of repentance. That I am in Christ. I can declare that my sin plagues me sometimes. I can walk in the room on a Sunday morning with my fellow believers and say, look, I have had a bad week. My, my week has been riddled with sin. I need to deal with it. I need to confess my sin. I need someone to help me along here. I need to turn from this. I need to repent of this. That's the mark of a believer. God allows us that grace through his son by his indwelling spirit. This is what Paul's been talking about. He's the one who helps us in our weakness. He's the one who, though our eyes constantly turn off of Christ, turns them back. Believe on him. Repent and believe. And if you're not in Christ this morning, we want you to know that this saving Message, this gospel of grace is afforded to you as well. Mark 1.15 says, repent and believe the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you ever think of that last day? That's a terrifying thought. I wouldn't even want to think about it if I didn't have the assurance of Christ. And we beg you as believers to come to him, to bow the knee to him, to repent, 
to cast your burden on him, the one who deals with it at the cross, who, who makes friends of God. Why don't, why don't we come and we'll come to this table where we, where we worship the Father in communion. This is exactly what we're doing right here as we take these elements. It's, it's this picture of Christ Jesus who took on our condemnation on himself. It's a gruesome picture, isn't it? He takes the bread and the wine and he says, this is my body, which is for you. This cup is the new covenant, my blood. It's a gruesome picture. But what it represents for us is this should be us. That this, this final day when the sentencing is handed down, we should be the ones who suffer this sentencing. That Jesus took it for us. He suffered on our behalf. But we are here with elements, representations of him. This is not actually him. He's not there anymore. He was raised. And so we do this in remembrance of him. We also do it proclaiming him until he comes because he is alive. And when we see him, we will be like him. And so we as believers take this together as a remembrance of what Christ has done and as a proclamation to one another our sin has been dealt with at the cross. That's why we ask if you're a believer this morning to take this, participate in this with us, enjoy this together, worship Jesus in this. And if you're not a believer, take this time to consider what Christ has done, what you've heard. Hear the proclamation of the saints around you as they worship Christ in this. And come to him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. What it says about us and about you. We thank you that it doesn't pull any punches when it comes to our own sin and our depravity. We need to hear the full scope of it. Father, we are guilty. Father, we thank you that your love for us outweighs that infinitely. And that you took on our sin, the person of your son. He came, lived a sinless life in our place, died the wrath-absorbing death in our place, and was raised for our justification. Father, we thank you that we can stand here now justified in Christ. That when you look at us, you see the precious blood of your Son. 
Father, would you help us to be a people who live life in light of this? May the gospel be on our lips. May this be the most important news that we know to share. Father, would you be glorified in us now? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The the ushers here, they're going to pass out the elements and you can take them at your leisure.